let's just spend a few moments going back over where we've been in the last few days. We started with the idea of trying to uh, respectfully uh, dismantle some of the edifices, both uh, doctrinal and institutional, hierarchical, of what we call Buddhism that have developed over the last two and a half thousand years since the Buddha's time in order to recover some sense of what was uh, distinctive, I would say also radical, in what the man Siddhartha Gautama was trying to do in the context of his time in the 5th century BC in North India. And I focused so far on some of the key metaphors that strike me as both highly original and also as extremely rich that we can take perhaps as a starting point for gaining a feel or a sense of how he saw his project. The beautiful thing about a metaphor as opposed to a doctrine, is that it allows uh, the imagination to work out associations and implications of an image. Remember the connection between image and imagination, rather than defining the teaching in terms of uh, clearly um, recognized and established doctrines or dogmas or views. So we started with the image of the raft, we moved on to the image of the city, and yesterday we looked at the image of a poisoned arrow. And what I think this is perhaps revealing is that how the Buddha sees his teaching as a means to an end, whether that is about putting together a practice that will get you across the river, as in the metaphor of the raft, or about removing a poisoned arrow um, as a means to recover well-being and health, both images also treat metaphysical ideas or grandiose doctrines, truth claims about things that can neither be demonstrated nor refuted with a high degree of, of caution and suspicion. And in the metaphor of the city, we see that the Buddha saw his teaching as leading not just to some kind of private, personal, spiritual well-being, but rather to um, the emergence or the creation of another kind of culture, perhaps even another kind of civilization, 
one in which all aspects of the human being are accorded equivalent importance. We saw already the idea of the Eightfold Path, which encompasses the way we see the world, the way we think about it, the way we make intentions, the way we're motivated to speak, to act, to work, the way we can then focus our lives within an ethical framework through the practice of mindfulness, through the practice of concentration. And that establishes, as it were, a, a kind of a, a, a template or a, a field for how the Buddhist practice um, can be cultivated and can be developed. Now today I'm going to look at another metaphor. At some point I'm going to run out of metaphors. But um, a metaphor that is perhaps even more central than the ones that we've looked at so far, and that is the metaphor of awakening. Now, there is some uh, confusion about this term uh, on a number of levels. Uh, first of all, we often fail to recognize that it's a metaphor. We use, in fact, two translations in English for the Pali-Sanskrit word bodhi. Some translators prefer to translate it as enlightenment, and others prefer to translate it as awakening. There are not two different words, as you might sometimes be led to believe by reading English books on the subject. There's just one word, bodhi, which has its root meaning in the idea of waking up. So the Buddha compares the experience we spoke of at the end of yesterday's talk, the experience he had beneath the Bodhi tree, the tree of awakening. He compares it with something that happens to us every morning of our lives, unless we are insomniacs. And that is the experience of waking up. In other words, the waking up in the morning, coming out of either a deep sleep or a dream state, is similar to, in some respects, what the Buddha described himself as having undergone on the night of the awakening. Again, we've tended to represent this historically and traditionally as a single event on a particular day. Perhaps that was the case. Perhaps it was a process that was rather more drawn out than that. We don't really know. But I think either way, what happened is that the Buddha or the, or, or the young Siddhartha Gautama, as he was then, experienced a, a fundamental shift an existential shift from preoccupation with his identity as a son, as a potential ruler of his community, as a husband, as a father, as a person with a particular social identity and rank, as a member of a class, as um, a psychological 
ego or self with its own history and story, with a person who held certain opinions and views about things. All of the things we could characterize as defining his place in the world. It's not as though he somehow rejected all that as irrelevant or non-existent. That's impossible. You can never cease to be a person who is born in a particular place, to particular parents, to have a particular history, a particular role in society. It's not a question of discarding all of that. That's simply not possible. But you can have a fundamentally different relationship to it. And it's that shift from that attempt, in many ways, to secure oneself in one's world by having an identity, to opening up and recognizing that there is a much bigger story going on. There's something far more fundamental that can concern one. And this is what the Buddha calls conditioned arising. But I think if we put it in more, in, in more explicit terms, it means opening one's mind and one's being to the fact that one has been thrown into this world at birth to be subject from that moment onwards to sickness, to breakdown, to aging, and finally death. This, of course, is beautifully symbolized in the legend of the young prince who leaves the palace encountering an old person, a sick person, a corpse, and then a wandering monk. And this, I think, says very much the same in a rather more concrete manner, namely that our, our life at a certain point, and perhaps all of, the, all of us here can recognize in our own story, a point where these bigger questions began to overshadow the questions of how we get by in the world how we um, work, how we organize ourselves, how we earn enough money, and so on. And we start to realize that this human life is very fragile. This human life is shot through with uncertainty. And this human life is also something profoundly strange, profoundly mysterious. The fact that we are here at all the fact that there is something rather than nothing. I feel that all of these sorts of perspectives open up when we experience these moments of a basic shift in our orientation from what the Buddha calls our alaya to our tanna, from our place to our ground. But the ground for the Buddha does not refer to some unconditioned ground. Again, it's a play on the term that would have been used by the Brahmins, the Adishtana. The Buddha uses the word Tana, the same word. Adishtana in the Brahmanic tradition refers to God, Brahman, the fundamental ground of being. The Buddha, quite um, shockingly, 
describes this ground not as unconditioned or fundamental or the source of all things, but he describes it as endless conditionality, flux, and pain. Conditioned arising, conditionality. There's nothing uh, that is somehow underpinning this process. It's just a, the sheer fact of the pouring forth of events in an open, contingent field of life. In some ways, this rather clumsy piece of Buddhist jargon, conditioned arising or dependent origination, in some ways, I think, is just a rather fancy way of expressing the idea, life. In a sense, the Buddha awoke to life itself. Life, of course, being in its very nature something that arises and then ceases. Whatever arises is something that ceases, becomes a slogan of the early Buddhist community. And I think it re refers to this, uh, this primary experience in the depths of ourselves of the, the arising and the passing of our life, of the life of all beings, of the world, and now we'd extend that, of course, to the planetary system, to the universe. This awakening is a recovering of that primacy of what it is to be here and now as a human being. And the question, of course, then arises, if this is the case, then how do I live in this world? What do I do? As we saw yesterday, um, the Buddha uh, experiences an enormous hesitation at this point. He says, if people were not to understand me, if I taught them this, then that would be tiring and vexing because it somehow goes against the stream of our expectations of what we think of as spiritual, religious or philosophical uh, life. There are no absolutes here. There's no, um, uh, nothing permanent, nothing fixed. Just the sheer outpouring of events that will change and we are one of those events. Now the Buddha then um, starts with this insight. And the problem is that that insight alone is not adequate to provide the basis for a way of life. It's too abstract in a way. And in his first teaching, which he eventually he gets up from the, beneath the tree and he goes off to Varanasi, Benares, he finds some former friends of his whom he did ascetic practices with, and then he begins to communicate, he begins to articulate the implications of this insight. And it's here that we arrive at the Buddha's first sermon. Now he makes it very clear, although we have to go to the end of the first sermon, you have it in your handout, it's called Turning the Wheel of Dhamma. He makes it very clear 
in the conclusion of this sermon what this awakening was about. He says, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of these four noble truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world. Now, since we find no mention of the four truths in the passage I cited yesterday from the Noble Quest, we just had this principle, Paticca Samuppada, then perhaps he only considered himself to be fully awake when he had articulated and developed that principle into what he calls here the twelve aspects of these four noble truths. This accords, I think, quite well with uh, a later Mahayana Buddhist doctrine that doesn't see awakening as a single moment, and particularly not as a single moment of experience occurring deep within oneself somewhere, in the privacy of one's soul, which is the kind of classic um, image we might have of it the enlightened person experiences enlightenment or awakening deep within themselves and that is adequate, complete and whole in itself. In Mahayana Buddhism, which gives much more emphasis to the compassionate expression and embodiment of awakening, we find that the idea of awakening is seen as a process. A process that begins within one's own intuitive understanding, which is private and it's just you who know about it, but then it needs, in order to be fulfilled or complete, it needs to find embodiment in the world of other people. So the technical words for this are the Dhammakaya, the Sambhogakaya, the Nirmanakaya. I'm not going to get into that now. But what that means basically is that awakening has an initially simply the presence kaya of the Dhamma, which is what, what the Buddha describes his, his experience. He says, this Dhamma that I have reached, it's an experience of some principle, some law. That then needs to be represented in some form in order that it can then be articulated and shared and expressed and in some senses given away to others. And that's called the Nirmanakaya. The Sambhogakaya is a kind of symbolic, imagistic, intermediary phase. Perhaps the phase of, of ideas, of metaphors. We see the same process occurring in the structure of the Eightfold Path. We start with seeing, then that moves into thought or intention. In other words, it's still private, but particularly if we see it as intention, it's the first step to moving into speech and acts. So the process of awakening is a movement that begins within, begins to 
move one to do something and then it is embodied in action or in speech. And of course action and speech imply the presence of others. Now the very metaphor of awakening with which I started out a few minutes ago and got distracted, the very image of awakening is quite similar to that. Think about what it means when you wake up from deep sleep or from a dream. You're no longer in a world that is private. When you're dreaming, there might be an awful lot of stuff going on, but it doesn't say anything whatsoever about what's happening in the world. It might be very revealing about your particular uh, psychic experience. If I dream of my mother, I may dream of her as a young woman, I may have some dream interaction with her, and that is saying something about me and my relationship to my mother, but it says nothing at all about what's happening to that 96-year-old woman in a nursing home in Shropshire in England. When I wake up, when my eyes open, when I come back to the world of the senses, I come back to the world of other people, I come back to the world of shared time and space, then I'm in a place which is not just saying something about me, like a dream or a deep sleep, but I'm in an unpredictable, complex, plural, and interactive, intersubjective experience. That's what is distinctive about the moment we wake up in the morning. And that will be accompanied perhaps by certain feelings, emotions, thoughts, the things we have to do, the things we don't want to do, a rather sinking feeling, oh no, another day at the office, or oh no, another day on the retreat, or, oh yes, another day on the retreat, <laughs> whatever it might be. But we, we prime ourselves immediately for what is to come, over which we don't have any real control. We give ourselves to the situation. So awakening, as a metaphor, is very much about uh, coming into our embodied relationship with life itself. And all that it will throw at us, both what we can foresee and what comes as a surprise, and we're called upon to respond. So again, the metaphor the Buddha uses of, of, of waking up, I think, is, is instructive. The idea of enlightenment is, a very, is based on a very different metaphor, the metaphor of, 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 of lighting a lamp. The Buddha does also use that metaphor. In fact, he uses it in the first sermon. But it's a very different kind of metaphor. You, you, you light the lamp and you see things that previously were obscured or in darkness. And that is certainly an aspect of any kind of understanding or insight. But it lacks the complexity and also, I think, the, the humanity of the, of the metaphor of waking up in the morning preparing ourselves 
for living another day. And I think likewise, when the Buddha describes very explicitly what it is that constitutes his awakening, he does not single out some particular feature of reality and say that I now understand X and now I am awake. Um, I haven't played this little experiment on with, with you today because you have the handout, you might have read it, you'd know the answer, but I've been traveling through America for the last few w weeks and I've frequently, um, without any preparation, come to the class in the morning and said, okay, I'm going to read out a couple of passages from the Buddha's uh, uh, sutta, discourses, and I'm going to leave one key word as X, and I want you to guess what it is. And so one of the passages is, is the one you have in your handout. Whoever in the past, the present, or the future becomes fully awakened to things does so by becoming fully awakened to X. And then the other one, which I've just read out, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about X, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world. And then I asked the audience, what do you think X is? Very rarely does anybody get it right. And the ones who do have usually heard my talks before. <laughs> People will tend to say, oh, that must be truth or not-self, perhaps dependent arising, uh, the nature of reality, uh, the unconditioned, the deathless, mind, the nature of mind, emptiness, Buddha nature, which shows that how we are, I think, well, many of us, uh, somehow naturally predisposed to think that awakening is about awakening to one, usually unitary or primary truth. Now this, of course, is true in many traditions. Um, in, in the Vedanta tradition, for example, one awakens to one's true self, which is identical to that of the divine. And that, I feel, is almost a normative um, uh, expression of how we would expect a person who has had some sort of deep mystical awakening to speak. I've understood the truth, the real truth. I've understood the nature of God, the nature of that which is beyond all concept. It's very prevalent, this idea, and of course, Buddhism likewise has tended to come to define awakening or enlightenment in this way. When I was trained as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, it was quite clear that to, to, to be awakened meant, in the Gelugpa tradition, that you have a direct, non-conceptual understanding of emptiness. Shunyata, which is also, of course, the ultimate truth or the absolute truth. When I was studying and training in a Zen monastery in Korea, then it was very clear 
repeated endlessly that to be awake means to be awakened to the shin, uh, the, the heart-mind, which is not the same as your ordinary everyday consciousness, but somehow transcends that and is fundamental to it. So the awakening has to, again to do with awakening to something which is transcendent uh, in a non-ordinary state of consciousness and it reveals to you something deeply true, meaningful and something connected with actually how the universe ticks or works or is underpinned by. And what's characteristic of, although those two understandings are quite different in those two different traditions, what unites them is that there is one privileged religious object, emptiness, mind, that is the, under, by understanding which is the key to awakening. What is characteristic about the Buddha's first sermon, and let's face it, this, I feel, should be a very uh, primary source of any, any claim about awakening. The Buddha doesn't say anything like that at all. In this whole sutta, there's no mention of, of, of the unconditioned or the deathless or emptiness or not-self or nirvana. But in the, on, on the contrary, he says, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the twelve aspects of the four truths. And this, again, I feel is a radical rupture with not only the traditions of his time, the Brahmanic traditions, but also, I think, with something quite almost instinctive about human um, expectations as to what enlightenment is. Instead of saying, I've awoken to the truth, he says, I've awoken to four truths. Instead of, and then he doesn't even leave it at that, he says 12 aspects of four truths. And in fact, when you look at the early teachings, we find that there is a, a consistent um, emphasis in the Buddha's teaching towards plurality and complexity. When he speaks of the human person, he speaks of it as five aggregates. And often this is a little bit puzzling when you encounter Buddhism for the first time and you come across the five aggregates, which everybody seems to have no problem with. Why five? Why not just body and mind, for example? No, five aggregates. And you look into his analysis of each aggregate and it breaks down into even more component parts. And then there's this enormous uh, emphasis on understanding how all of these different components of our experience are interconnected, like the 12 links, for example, we mentioned yesterday how everything is somehow tied up together, how everything is in flux, how everything is impermanent, how everything is changing. There's, there almost seems to be a deliberate um, movement away from singularity, unity, oneness, towards an encounter with a complex world, both within oneself, 
And this, of course, is what has create, uh, provides the foundation for Buddhist psychology, which again is, 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 a, is a very complex system, and also the Buddhist account of the phenomenal world, or we might say phenomenology, the diversity of the world. And here we have, in the very uh, culminating passage of the first of the Buddha's teachings, an explicit definition of awakening as concerning 12 aspects of four truths. Now to work out these 12 aspects, we have to read the text backwards. In fact, curiously, I think the, the key to, to getting the impact of this text is to start at the end and work backwards. I know that sounds odd, but I think you'll get my point um, if you follow where I'm going. So he said these 12 aspects of the four truths. What are these 12 aspects? If you look in the passage right above, which starts, such is dukkha, such is suffering, you'll see that for each truth, the truth of suffering, craving, cessation, the path, you find there are three sentences. Such is suffering, one. It can be fully known, two. It has been fully known, three. Such is craving, four. It can be let go of, five. It has been let go of, six. Such is cessation, that's the cessation of craving. Seven, it can be experienced. Eight, it has been experienced. Nine, such is the path. Ten, it can be cultivated. Eleven, it has been cultivated. Twelve. So what's going on here? The Buddha is presenting his four truths quite clearly, not as four uh, truth claims or four things you are expected now to believe. But he's presenting the four truths as four tasks to be recognized, one, performed, two, accomplished, three. So suffering first is to be recognized, then something has to be done about it. And he doesn't say suffering is to be eliminated. He says suffering is to be fully known. Parinya, totally known. And then as his account of his awakening, he says it has been fully known. So his awakening to these four truths entails the fact that he has recognized, performed, and accomplished four tasks. The task of fully knowing dukkha, suffering, <laughs> letting go of grasping, craving, experiencing the stopping of craving, and cultivating the Eightfold Path. And this, I feel, presents us with a, um, again, a template for 
of, of, of action, something to do, not something to believe in. The four truths are not four things that you, you somehow understand. Each truth requires a different uh, relationship to it. You, you need to fully know suffering, but you need to let go of craving. You need to experience those moments when it stops, and you need to create or cultivate the path. It's also only the case. It's also the case that only when you see these four truths as four tasks can you see. I think, why the Buddha laid them out in the sequence he did. In other words, he starts with suffering, then he moves to craving, then he moves to the cessation of craving, then he moves to the Eightfold Path. In other words, the fully knowing of dukkha is the precondition for the letting go of grasping and the letting go of grasping is the precondition for its coming to a stop, and the stopping of grasping is the precondition for entering the Eightfold Path. But as we've seen in the metaphor of the city, that the Eightfold Path leads to the Four Truths. And this model, this uh, structural feature, is likewise characteristic of the first sermon itself. If we go to the very beginning of the text, the Buddha says, this is what I, well, not the Buddha speaking now, but this is how it begins. The Buddha was staying at Varanasi in the deer park at Isipatana, and he addressed the group of five. He then first describes the two dead ends that he's avoided. One gone forth does not pursue two dead ends, infatuation, mortification. And then he makes his first claim. He says, I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. It's a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening, and release. And it has eight branches and with the Eightfold Path. That's where he begins. He doesn't start with the first noble truth. He starts with the Eightfold Path, which is also the fourth noble truth. So it's exactly the same as in the city story. You, he finds a path in the forest that leads to the ruins of an ancient city. Likewise here, he has found a middle path that leads to, and then he lists without any transition, to the Four Noble Truths, which is how he explains the metaphor of the ancient city. So what he's describing, as I mentioned already before, is not an awakening that leads to some kind of state, even a very deep, profound state of enlightenment, but rather he has found a path that leads to a radically new relationship with life. And that relationship goes through knowing suffering fully, letting go of craving, experiencing moments of cessation, 
which open up the possibility for another way of living in this world. And now we can begin to see how that could provide the template for a whole other kind of culture. But in order to really get that, I think we need in particular to consider the first noble truth, the truth of dukkha. And what does that mean, to fully know dukkha? First of all, we have to be careful in how we use the word dukkha itself. It does, of course, quite correctly mean something like suffering or pain or dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness. But the Buddha also uses the term dukkha as a characteristic of existence. He says, sabha sankara dukkha. All conditioned things are dukkha. Now, that's difficult to translate into English. It doesn't make much sense to say all conditioned things are suffering. Uh, this glass of water is a conditioned thing. But if I drop it on the floor, it is not going to go, ouch. In what sense is this glass of water dukkha? Or perhaps more relevantly, in what sense is my, uh, my, my, my stock portfolio dukkha? <laughs> <laughs> Nowadays we can perhaps understand that a little better. Well, <laughs> it's dukkha not because it experiences pain in any way, it obviously doesn't, but it's not something we can rely upon. In other words, it can, its value can shift. And the reason that it is dukkha is because it's subject to uh, impermanence and it's subject to forces beyond its control. A stock portfolio is tied to the markets. And if the markets change, particularly if they go down or they crash, then the stock portfolio changes too. It's not worth as much. So in that sense, it's dukkha. Now, in, in English, I think perhaps the word, for me at least, that works best here is unreliable, undependable. We can't depend upon it for the kind of well-being that we hope one day that it will provide. It's just not the sort of thing that can do that. It might, of course, grow and develop and make us rich, and provide for our old age, but it might not. We have to take a bit of a gamble. We have to have faith in the capitalist system. <laughs> but you can see quite clearly from this example that we're working with something that is not, uh, uh, it's not dependable. There's an element of risk involved, and of, of uncertainty. And it's in this sense, I think, that we come to see that dukkha is not just about my subjective feelings of discomfort and pain and anxiety. It does include that. But also it has another sense 
in which it points to the, uh, the, 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 the imperfection of life itself, the imperfection of the things of the world to provide us with what we most deeply yearn for in our heart of hearts, which is some kind of well-being, contentment, happiness. The primary error, or one of the primary errors that the Buddha uh, is, is aware of, is that we spend a lot of our time trying to manipulate, trying to control, trying to organize our world in a way that it will seem to uh, achieve a kind of perfection that will thereby meet our deepest longings and needs for happiness. A very instructive way of observing this is by noticing the content of your fantasies and daydreams in meditation. I don't, I don't, I don't want you to spend too much time doing this because it's not what the meditation is primarily about, but I suspect for most of us, when you catch yourself daydreaming, in other words, as Shada said last, last night, we don't invite the daydream, it happens by itself. In other words, it's saying something about what is almost instinctive in our human behavior. And very often it's very revealing. It reveals what it is that we want or what we're afraid of. And in both cases, that's about getting something or avoiding something in order that we can have well-being, in order that we'll be fulfilled. It might be quite a trivial thing, you know, getting a, you know, getting a, a promotion in the office or whatever. But we can invest enormous importance in that. And in fact, what we tend to do is exaggerate what in fact these achievements or these accomplishments or these possessions can give us. The Tibetans have a wonderful word for this. They call it drodokpa, which means sticking feathers in things. <laughs> we embellish things. The, the most accomplished um, institution in our world at doing this is the advertising industry. And if you look at adverts on TV or on the cinema or in the magazines, just stop for a moment and look at how brilliantly they're done. When, you, when something is advertised, let's say it's a jar of instant coffee, it's never just presented on a blank screen for 30 seconds saying, with, a, with a logo underneath saying, buy this. <laughs> that wouldn't work, but basically that's what the aim of the exercise is. So it has to embellish the whole thing. The jar of coffee will usually be discreetly placed on a lovely little table outside on a sunny day, the beautiful green lawn, there's an impossibly handsome man and an impossibly beautiful woman sitting by the table, <laughs> immaculately, immaculately attired. <laughs> the cutest little three, four-year-old girl with blonde curls dancing across the lawn. <laughs> Golden Labrador flounces in. <laughs> and in the midst of all of this, these people are sipping this kind of crappy instant coffee. 
So, uh, and we, of course, as meditators and spiritual people, look upon this with disdain. <laughs> but the next time we're at Trader Joe's, <laughs> and we need some instant coffee, which one do we choose? <laughs> so, that's just an example of how, um, how we invest in rather mundane things, uh, something that, in fact, they're incapable of providing. Another good way of looking at this is to go into your attic and get some old magazines that you might have had since the 60s or 70s and look at the adverts. And you look at this stuff and you think, well, why would anyone have wanted that? <laughs> it, it's, and this, the whole business works on um, creating a desire for something which will not, in the end, fulfill your longings because the next year another model comes out which is slightly improved. And uh, in other words, it's an endless quest for something that in fact will always remain tantalizingly beyond your reach. Now that's just an, a, an example of how um, we are driven in so much of our lives by this quest for perfection, for uh, a situation that is utterly and ultimately reliable, rather than noticing what the Buddha calls the, the dukkha of all situations. And this, uh, in, uh, this fully knowing dukkha is not easy. It's, uh, it, it goes against the stream of our habits in a very deep way. And so this is why I think it's almost impossible to really understand dukkha without cultivating a more still, open, and attentive consciousness. And that's, I think, one of the primary reasons that I, for, I at least, do meditation because I need to somehow find a way of being in this world in which I'm to some extent insulated or uh, anesthetized to some degree against the habit of wanting, to be able to just stop and see what's going on and not get caught up in fantasies, images, whatever, but just to look closely and deeply at what is the case. One of the meditations I did for many years when I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk was a daily meditation on death, my own death. And I would sit, and we were encouraged to do this uh, as, as a very central part of our practice, to sit in meditation, to calm the mind to some degree, and then to reflect on the fact that the only thing that is certain in this life is that I will die. Everything else that uh, uh, might happen or could happen is uncertain. I can make millions of plans, but I can never be assured or guaranteed that I'll be able to fulfill them. 
for the simple reason is that I might have a heart attack in the next minute. I may not be there. And yet this one certain thing that stands before us is something we definitely do not spend much time thinking about. We, tr we, 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 we push it to the side of our consciousness. We might find it kind of scary. But the Buddha here is suggesting that if we're to understand impermanence, we're not understanding just some abstract principle of how things change. But for that to really kick in, it needs to be applied to the fact that I am impermanent. And that's a very difficult truth to really embrace. It all, we, we seem to resist that uh, in a very, very fundamental way. Yet the Buddha is saying that if we're going to have any chance of creating another kind of culture in this world, we have to get back to these primary truths and facts of existence. So one meditates, or I meditated for a number of years on this fact that the one thing is cert that's certain in the future is that I would die. And the second aspect of the meditation is that this one thing that is certain could happen at any time. It's completely uncertain when I will die. We like to think, we assume, there's always, it's never going to be next week. It'll be some little time off. We create, we have this constant psychological buffer zone. Me and my death is always kept conveniently and comfortably apart. But the strange thing is, as you get older, I've noticed this with my elderly mother, for example, the buffer zone remains the same. <laughs> the, my mother, too, who's 96 and actually says she wants to die, doesn't seriously think she'll die next week. But at some point, it will be next week. And that's true for all of us, even if we are young and healthy now. You only have to think of someone of your own age someone you knew well, who's no longer with you. And you tend to think, in a, which is in a naive sense true, that it's only the other people who die. As long as we're alive, that, that will be necessarily true. <laughs> but uh, it has the convenient uh, implication of letting us off the hook. I'm very, I don't want to make this into a, 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 in, 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 into a joke of any kind. It's very serious. And the strange thing about meditating on death uh, that I found is that it doesn't make you morbid and gloomy and depressed. In fact, it has the unexpected consequence of waking you up to the fact that you're alive. That life is... Uh, in a sense, an extraordinarily precious thing. Something that is with you maybe only for a brief time to come. And yet something that we take for granted, something we get bored with. We, we fail to see what an extraordinary thing it is just to exist. To see, hear, smell, taste, touch, feel, think, be aware, know people, have relationships with others, 
These things we take for granted, and yet they could be with us for a very, very short time to come. In the, in the writings of some of the Hellenistic philosophers that I've been studying recently, uh, there's one text, I forget where it comes from, where I think it's an Epicurean teacher says that, imagine that you had never experienced this world that you know now. What, what we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, this everyday experience. Imagine that you'd never known that. And then suddenly it was there. You see, smell, hear, taste, touch what we're experiencing right now. And the, and, and, the, and the writer says that would be all that would be utterly adequate. That would be that would be enough. The fact that you are here now. That would be so extraordinary if you hadn't had that experience of it before. But that you wouldn't want anything else. And I think the practice of mindfulness, the practice of meditation, is in many ways waking up to the extraordinary fact of being alive now. And as it were, rejoicing that you are here, that evolution over these millions of years has somehow thrown your mother's ovum and your father's spermatozoan together that you've got born and now you are here. That is the most miraculous thing. Far more miraculous or mystical than much of what we might read in religious texts. And that's why I find the practice of mindfulness so uh, so, so um, uh, uh, primary, really, is that it reminds us of the fact that we are alive at all. And if we could live with that sense of a contentment with the sheer presence of simple, ordinary things, that would completely alter not only our, our desires and our fears, but our whole sense of what our lives would be for and how they could be lived. And that th this, I think, is the implication of fully knowing dukkha. But I'm going to have to stop here. And tomorrow we'll continue through the rest of the uh, truths to see how this perspective of fully knowing Dukkha is the, is the foundation for the falling away of grasping and craving and pettiness and jealousy and all of that stuff that opens up the possibility of another way of life. So thank you for your attention. And we can now... Have, now we have a period of walking. Again, another primary human act that we fail to appreciate and then we'll come back and sit and then we'll have lunch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.